You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, will you grab that and turn to the book of Colossians? I've had a microphone malfunction this morning, so I'm going with the handheld. So no worries. We still have God's Word to study and he has an important message for us today. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You will find Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now, or you can grab one on your way out of worship this morning. And if you're willing and able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? This morning we're looking at the end of the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. Then we'll focus on verses 2 to 6. Listen carefully to these words from God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always Always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, today we are finishing up the letter of Colossians. Though remember that this study, preeminent, includes the letters of Colossians and Philemon. We haven't yet gotten to Philemon, and we will, though not immediately. Next week is Praise in the Park, so don't forget that next Sunday we will have no activities here on campus. We will be at Seminole City Park at 10.30 a.m. Note the time change from our regular meeting time. We're not meeting at 10.15 next week. We're meeting at 10.30, and also remember that it's fall back. Sunday next week. So 10.30 a.m. Praise in the Park. Praise in the Park is a wonderful opportunity for you to invite some unchurched, de-churched friends to come hang out with us at the park, enjoy the beauty of God's creation, enjoy some, some powerful music, and meet some new people. So invite some to come and join us next week. Then the week after that, we'll be back here in the worship center and we'll look at the letter of Philemon, a short but muscular letter that many of us neglect. So we'll wrap up this preeminent series by looking at Philemon. That's where we're going in the weeks ahead. Now, a few weeks back, when we looked at Colossians 3, you might remember, at the end of Colossians 3, Paul teaches us about Christ-centered family, among other things, Christ-centered family. Today, he'll call us to get involved in our community. Today, he'll teach us about Christ-centered witness. Now, why, I wonder, does Paul end the letter on this note? on the note of witness. Well, we don't know for sure. Paul doesn't tell us. But my hunch, my hunch is it's because so much of this letter deals with the danger of false teaching. Those philosophers who were promoting this Jesus plus approach to spirituality on the streets of Colossae, that ancient city Paul wrote this letter to, so much of the letter has dealt with those false teachers and the danger of getting too close to them. In fact, back in chapter 2, when Paul gives us the most detailed description of those philosophers, he says to the church, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you prisoner by these dangerous, deceptive ideas. Now, my hunch is that because Paul has given this strong but necessary warning, 
he anticipated that certain Christians would overreact. They would hear, do not be deceived, and they would say something like, if there are deceptive ideas out there in the world, then I'll stay in here, in here with my family, in here with my brothers and sisters in Christ. If there are deceptive ideas out there, then I'll stay in here where it's safe. But to do that, to do that would be to abandon, to reject the marching orders of the very preeminent Christ that Paul has been teaching us about. The Christ who said to his first followers, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We cannot hear the call, do not be deceived by the various ideas of the world and conclude from that call that we are to disconnect or separate from the world. And so I think Paul ends the letter this way to emphasize that very point. We are called to go into the world, to participate in the advancement of the gospel. And so that's what he talks about here at the end of chapter four. Following the flow of his argument, Paul calls us to get involved in the advancement of the gospel in three particular ways. First, pray persistently. Second, pray evangelistically, and we'll talk about what that means. And finally, witness wisely. So pray persistently, pray evangelistically, and witness wisely. First, pray persistently. Look at verse two. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer. The verb he uses here literally means to busy oneself with. Now, I bet most of us would say we're busy. In fact, you probably would say you're crazy busy. But I wonder if any of us would say we have busied ourselves with prayer. We have other priorities, don't we? Other things we think are more important. I think to truly begin to persist in prayer, we must, we must understand what prayer is and what prayer does. A couple of our small groups in the church, some of our connection groups, are reading this semester Tim Keller's book on prayer. We've got a men's group and a women's group that are working through this same book, so probably 30 or so folks in the church are studying this book And as I've been reading it, I've been writing down some observations, clarifying my own thinking on prayer. I want to give you five or six contrasting statements to help you get a better grasp of what prayer is, and then we'll talk about what it does. Prayer is attentiveness to God. Lack of prayer, then, is inattentiveness to Him. Prayer is conversation with God. Lack of prayer is coldness toward him. Prayer is encounter with God. Lack of prayer is distance from him. Prayer is dependence on God. Lack of prayer is self-reliance. Prayer is the heart engaged in love for God. Lack of prayer is the heart turned elsewhere. And finally, prayer is surrender to God. 
lack of prayer is rebellion. See, it's this final juxtaposition that brings out most clearly what prayer does. When I, when you, when we devote our lives to listening to God's word and responding to him in prayer, something wonderful happens in us. See, we tend to think of prayer as doing something in God, changing God somehow. No, prayer changes us. As I listen to God's word and respond to him in prayer, my loves are reordered. My priorities begin to change. Deep and abiding change happens in my heart and in my life. I begin to love the very things that God loves. My will is brought into alignment with his will. If I'm on a boat and I throw out a boat hook to the shore, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is us pulling ourselves to God, aligning our will, our desires with his In prayer, you don't just get things from God, you get more of God himself. So you see, if you want to grow in your intimacy with God, if you want to love the way God loves, then throw out the boat hook. Throw out the boat hook of prayer and watch how your heart and how your life changes. Persist in prayer. Continue steadfastly in it, Paul says. And then to this he adds, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Being watchful literally means to be awake. And of course it's important to stay awake while we're praying, though Paul's not using the term literally here, he's using it in a figurative sense. If we look at some of the other places in the New Testament where this same word or this idea of watchfulness occurs, we get a better sense of what Paul is talking about here. Most often in the Gospels and in Paul's other letters, this word is used in the context of being watchful as we think about the return of Christ, the imminent return of Christ. There is a certainty and an uncertainty associated with Christ's second coming. We can be certain that one day he will come again. But Jesus himself says, watch therefore, same word, watch therefore for no one knows the day or the hour. Certainty, he is coming again. Uncertainty, no one knows when. Remember that as we hear increasingly here these days, ponderings and predictions about the end of the world. No one knows the day or the hour. Watchfulness then, in this context of prayer, means that we should be mindful that Jesus could return any day. And that thought should motivate our prayers. It should cause us to pray. It should cause us to consider our own lives. To be watchful in light of Christ's return doesn't mean that you and I go lay down in our courtyard out there, look up at the sky, and just wait hoping that in any minute Jesus will come down. That's not watchfulness. Watchfulness means watch your own life in light of the imminent return of Christ. Ask questions like, am I being a good steward of this day? Jesus could return this day or any day. That's watchfulness. That should motivate our prayer life. 
Pray persistently. So the first point, the first call to action here is a more general one, a general call to prayer. The next two calls to action will be more specific. Now Paul will really focus on how exactly we as believers are to get involved in the advancement of the gospel throughout the world. Secondly, pray evangelistically. Pray evangelistically. Look at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. What does the word evangelism mean? Evangelism is the people of God presenting the message of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit with the goal that unbelievers will call on the name of Jesus will repent of their sin, will confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord and then serve him in the context of his church. That's evangelism. So to pray evangelistically is to pray for the gospel to advance to new territories. Like we pray for a different country every week here at Faith Church. It's to pray for the gospel to go to new people. It's to pray for God to open doors and to open hearts. In fact, that's the very language Paul uses here. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Do you see how Paul very quickly changes his focus or emphasis here? On the one hand, he's asking other Christians to pray for him and for other people who are working in ministry, sharing the gospel. Pray for us. But then very quickly, immediately, pray that God may open to us a door for the word. Paul is emphasizing divine sovereignty in the task of evangelism. The way that people are changed, the way that the gospel goes to new territories, goes to new hearts, is only because God is at work. God is the one who opens doors. That means that prayer is a vital part of the evangelistic task. Most of us can think of someone in our lives, family member, friend, somebody who's not a believer. If you're not praying for that person, then you're not praying for God to open the door to their heart. Only God can get to the heart. It's a bit like this. I'll share you a short story to help you get this point. There once was a young man, a young man who went to the foreman of a logging crew and asked for a job. And the foreman said, well, that depends. Let's see you fell a tree. So the young man stepped forward and he felled a great tree with skill. So the foreman said, start Monday. The young man showed up to work. Monday through Thursday went by. He worked hard. But on Thursday, the foreman came to him and said, you can pick up your paycheck at the end of the day. Surprised, the young man said, wait, I, I thought you paid us on Friday. Oh, we do, the foreman said, but I'm letting you go. Why, the young man said. Well, because, the foreman replied, our daily charts show that you're in last place. You dropped from first place on Monday to last place on Wednesday. The young man replied, but I'm such a hard worker. I show up early. I stay late. I'm the only one who doesn't take breaks. Sensing his integrity, the foreman looked at him and he asked a very simple question. But have you been sharpening your axe? 
Uh, the young man looks down, ashamed to have made such an obvious mistake. I've been working too hard to do that, he said. Friends, if you want to share the gospel with someone, if you're involved in ministry, whatever type of ministry it is, if the busyness of ministry has you working more and more and praying less and less, then you're hacking away at that tree with a dull blade. Sharpen your prayer life. God is the one who opens doors. So pray, persist in it, pray evangelistically. Now, here in verse three, Paul emphasizes divine sovereignty in the task of evangelism. But in the very next verse, he emphasizes human responsibility. God is powerful and we have a part to play. Notice verse four. Pray that God may open to us a door and pray that I may make it clear, the gospel that is, which is how I ought to speak. Having prayed for God to work mightily in the hearts of others, we then have the responsibility to speak the gospel clearly when God opens that door. Now, clarity of communication, especially as it relates to presenting the gospel, clarity is the missing ingredient in so much of the church's evangelism these days. So I want to try in just a few minutes to be helpful on this point of clarity. How can we be clear in our presentation of the gospel? We need three things. We need to know the gospel, first and foremost, of course. We need to know the gospel. To share it clearly, we must understand it rightly. Now listen, if you are a believer, then by definition, you believe the gospel. You know the gospel. So you are ready. You are ready to share with others, though you might not feel ready. You will begin to feel more prepared, more equipped, if you will regularly rehearse the content of the gospel in your own thinking. Now, I don't recommend memorizing a script and then just reciting or regurgitating that script on every unbeliever you encounter like you're a telemarketer with a product to sell. That's not helpful. I do, however, recommend organizing your thoughts under a couple of simple headings so that as conversations develop organically and as they shift into spiritual territory, you are clear in your own mind on the major topics, the major doctrines, the major truths you wanna bring into the conversation. So I encourage you to think about four headings. God, man, Jesus, response. God, in the beginning God created the world. Everything was perfect. He designed us to live in personal fellowship with him, to showcase his love as we exercised dominion over his creation. In the very beginning when God created man, relationships were just right. Man's existence was peaceful and purposeful. But, second, man rebelled. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rejected their creator. And the result was brokenness. Their relationship with God, broken. Their relationship with each other, broken. Their relationship with creation itself, broken. 
we all inherit that broken creation and a selfish, sinful condition. By nature and choice, we are sinners, we are rebels. We repeat that initial rebellion again and again and again. Jesus, God, man, Jesus. Focus on his identity and his ministry. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man. In his life, death, and resurrection, he did everything necessary to fix the brokenness, to accomplish our salvation. This means that because of Jesus, our relationship with God is restored. Our relationship with each other, all of our relationships are transformed, and one day when Jesus returns, he will rid his creation of all sin, suffering, and death. God, man, Jesus responds. Everything that Jesus has done for us, it's not applied to us until we turn from our sin and trust in him, faith and repentance. That's the gospel. Believer, you can share that good news with someone. You can, but you must know the gospel. And secondly, this might surprise you, it's not enough to simply know the gospel. Of course, we begin there, but we must also know people. We must know people. We must do the difficult, time-consuming work of getting to know other people, unbelievers, and discerning the deep messages or deep stories of the culture that they have been influenced by. And only after we've done that are we ready, third and finally, to apply God's answers to their questions in intelligible terms. We love people, we listen to them, we listen to the questions they're asking, and then when God opens the door, we respond with his answers. Missiologists refer to this final step as contextualization. Paul, the writer of Colossians, was a master at it, a master at it. In the book of Acts, we read about all of Paul's missionary journeys. He traveled all over the place, and the goal was always the same. The goal was always to share Christ. But Paul was mindful of the people in front of him. He knew his audience. He knew people. And the people in front of him determined the path he took to Jesus. There's only one way to salvation, Jesus Christ. But there are many ways of getting to Jesus. Paul understood this. In Acts chapter 17, probably the best example of contextualization in Paul's missionary journeys, in Acts 17, he goes to the city of Athens, and he's invited to speak to a group of leading intellectuals. And as he does, he makes four moves. I want you to see these and think about how you might apply them in your own relationships and context. Here are the four moves that he makes. The first thing he does is he discerns or identifies the dominant cultural narratives. So he stands before these Athenians and he says, I notice that you all are living in this story of discovery. See, the Athenians, they devoted all their time to learning something new. It was all about finding a new path, a new idea, a new experience. Their story that they had bought into, been influenced by, was a story of discovery. Paul discerns this, and he even points it out using an example from the Athenian culture. He says, in fact, gentlemen, as I came into town today, I noticed all of these altars. 
Altars everywhere, including an altar to the unknown God. He identifies that this is a dominant part of their culture. The second thing he does is he affirms, in part, their cultural narrative. In pointing out all of those altars, it's as if Paul is saying, men of Athens, I see that you're worshipers. It's good to be a worshiper. I, too, am a worshiper. In fact, we're all worshipers. He affirms, in part, their cultural narrative as a way of making a connection with them. But then third, he subverts it. He goes back to this idea of the altar to the unknown God. And he says, men of Athens, I see you have this altar to an unknown God. It's as if you know, somewhere deep down you know, you're missing something. You're afraid there's something out there, someone out there that you don't yet know about. You have an altar just in case he shows up. I can tell you about the one you're missing. He subverts. He shows what's missing in their cultural narrative. And then finally, he's ready to re-narrate, to tell a better story, the gospel story. But it begins by him knowing his audience and discerning the cultural narrative of the day. This is how we, today, can share the gospel with clarity and in a compelling way. Now, maybe you hear all that and think, gosh, is it really, is it really necessary? That sounds pretty complex. That's quite a process. That takes time. Can't I just go up to someone, my unbelieving neighbor, and say, Jesus loves you and me. This I know, for the Bible tells us so. Of course, you could do that. You could do that. But I think if we look at the book of Acts and we watch Paul carefully, it's interesting that though his goal is always to share Jesus, he never shares Jesus the same way twice. He takes the time to get to know the people in front of him first, and then he's able to share with clarity and in a much more compelling way. This is how we can share the gospel with clarity today. Know the gospel, know people, and then apply God's answers to their questions in intelligible terms. Finally, at the end of our passage, we're running short on time, I know. Continuing in this same direction, Paul calls us to witness wisely. So think about what he's done thus far. He starts with that general call to prayer, pray persistently, and he gets a little more specific. As you're praying persistently, pray especially for the advancement of the gospel in your own community and throughout the world, and you have the responsibility to act in accordance with your prayers. So as you pray for God to open doors, look for those doors to be open for you to speak clearly. And now he continues in that same direction by calling us to witness wisely. Verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. By outsiders, he means those outside the faith, unbelievers. In our day-to-day -day interactions with unbelievers, we need wisdom. In the Bible, wisdom is that crucial intermediate, intermediate step between thought and action. Between thought and action. Or, we could state it like this. Wisdom is needed when the laws don't help us. Wisdom is needed when the laws don't help us. So let me show you what I mean. We have a very clear command, pray persistently. That was back in verse two. So in that case, we don't need wisdom. We need obedience, obedience to the command of God. It's a clear prescription. 
But there are a hundred, a thousand different things we encounter throughout the course of our week where we don't have a biblical command. We don't have a clear, obvious prescription. For example, you're a high school senior or a college student and you've been invited to a party. And on the one hand, at that party, you'll have the opportunity to befriend a lot of unbelievers. But on the other hand, at that party, there will likely be some major temptations. So do you go or do you pass? Well, here's another. You're a middle-class professional and you have some transgender coworkers who insist that you use their preferred pronouns. What do you do? In cases like these, and there are 100,000 others, we don't have a clear biblical command. So we need wisdom. Wisdom will help us see how our new way of thinking as a follower of Jesus needs to play out in this situation or in that one. And scripture teaches us that God is the giver of wisdom. So the more you spend time listening to his word and speaking with him in prayer, the wiser you will be. And then you will make the best use of the time. You will make the best of every opportunity that comes your way. We need wisdom in our interaction with unbelievers. And then finally, Paul tells us in verse six, we need a certain way of speaking. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Our words, on a daily basis, knowing that unbelievers are watching us all the time, our words must always be full of grace and with plenty of salt. This salty speech that Paul talks about in this context, it means it's winsome, it's attractive, it arouses a thirst for listening. We love our unbelieving friends and we speak to them in such a way that they continue to come to us with their questions. They want to be around us. They enjoy our company. If you want that friend to come to the point of saying, I believe your message, then you must begin with living the Christian life in such a way that they say, I enjoy your company. I enjoy your company. Is your speech filled with grace? Is it winsome? Is it attractive? Do you have some unbelieving friends in your life who are bringing you their questions? Let me close with this word of encouragement. I suspect for some of you this has been a tough message to hear because all morning long you've been thinking about that person in your life, that unbeliever, that unbelieving son or granddaughter or dear friend or whoever it is. And so many times you have tried to share the truth with him or her, and you've almost given up. Don't. Recommit today. Recommit. Persist in prayer. God opens doors. God opens doors. Persist in prayer. And do whatever you can to stay involved in that person's life. If in the past you have shared the truth of the gospel with him or her, then they know that you are the bridge to the sacred. You are their bridge to the sacred. 
And sooner or later, something complex will happen in that person's life. Some crisis will hit. How do I know? Because that's life in a fallen world. And when that day comes, maybe, just maybe, that person will come to you, asking you to speak to them on behalf of God. See, whether you realize it or not, you are their unofficial, functional chaplain. You are their bridge to the sacred. So persist in prayer for them and remain present in their lives. And that way, when God opens that door, you'll be right there, ready to speak with clarity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this call today. We all needed to hear it. A call to take the gospel to the nations, beginning right here in our own community where you have sovereignly stationed us. Lord, help us right now to think, to visualize those people in our lives who, as far as we can tell, they are not believers. They so desperately need to respond positively to this life-changing message of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, as we think about those people, as we visualize them now, help us to persist in prayer for them. We pray that you, the sovereign God, will work in their hearts, that you will soften, that you will open. And God, we ask you to use us Give us the opportunity. Give us the words, the clear speech that we need when the time comes. Each day, help us to live wisely. Help us to season our speech. How to be gracious in all things. Jesus, what you have done in us We so want to see done in others. This good news, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's just too good. We want to share it with others. We ask for your help in that. Work in hearts. Work in hearts. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.